Welcome to Unboxed. I'm your host, Connie Nam, the founder of Astrid and Mew. In these conversations, I speak to the founders of some of the most innovative, bold, and exciting businesses to discover the person behind the brand and what it took for them to build their empires. My guest today is author, travel writer, and content creator Gina Jackson, also known as Gina Goes To. Gina is an expert on all things influencing and reveals how you can always achieve authenticity, whether you're a creator yourself or a brand wanting to take the plunge. This episode is sponsored by Payhawk. Growing a business from a startup to a scale-up comes with many challenges. One way to solve this is to introduce effective systems at the right time. Payhawk, a corporate card and expenses management solution for scale-ups, have literally transformed many lives at Astrid and Mew since implementing earlier this year. To simplify, Payhawk combines company cards, reimbursable expenses, accounts payable, and seamless accounting software integrations into a single product that can be used globally. In this episode, Gina and I discuss her journey from working with influencers to being a full-time influencer herself. She wishes she had taken the leap earlier. If I could do one thing differently in my business, I would have implemented systems earlier, Payhawk being one of them. The automated workflow has really freed up our time and resources. Welcome to the show, Gina. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so nice to have you. I'm really excited about this conversation. Me too. So Gina, you're a content creator for Gina Goes Too, as well as a travel writer. But I think you've had a lot of career in the past that led you to this. Tell, tell me all about it. Yeah, I guess if we rewind back to the start from when I graduated, I basically went straight into a career in fashion tech. Um, so I've worked at a range of different companies, small to large. Um, you might have heard of LTK. It's like an influencer shopping platform. Yeah. TikTok, where I was working in the partnerships team. And then most recently, by rotation, the fashion rental platform. Um, so I had this kind of full-time career um, at those companies but on the side I was essentially doing content creation mainly travel and I started that at university and realized whilst I was working full-time that this was the thing that was really kind of keeping me going it was my creative expression that I needed on the side so I basically maintained that throughout you know six seven years of my career and then just earlier this year, I decided to just go fully freelance and fully give travel writing and travel content creation a proper shot. Oh, well done. Thank you. <laughs> and going back to your content creation and your Instagram account, um, how did you get started at university? And is it now what you set it out to be or has it completely changed? It's definitely evolved. So when I started at university, I obviously was just a student. So I was just looking for some creative expression in between lectures I'd kind of walk around town take pictures of pretty doors and coffee shops and now I'm obviously mainly creating content about kind of luxury travel and hotels so obviously back then I didn't have the budget to stay at nice hotels but when I started working full-time basically every single penny that I earned I put towards traveling going to nice hotels exploring them on the weekends and from there, it just naturally evolved into being more of a travel account. I didn't set out to necessarily kind of be an influencer or grow a following. But I do think I was quite lucky that I was creating at a time where it was much easier to grow and it was less saturated on Instagram. Um, so, yeah, it basically evolved very naturally. Yeah, that's amazing. So it set out as your passion and then it just grew. Yeah, essentially it was a hobby and it was really... 
slowly became more and more part of my identity. Um, I think it was kind of unavoidable once you start growing a following and spending so much time creating content and spending all of your weekends doing it, it becomes a part of your identity. So it was a hobby and then it became a kind of side hustle business because it started to bring in some kind of revenue. Um, and now it's, it's kind of my full-time occupation. How did you make that switch? Really recently this year, back in April, I kind of made the decision to step away from my full-time career and fully do travel writing and travel content creation. And it wasn't the easiest decision to make. I think for a long time it had been building up. People were often asking me, you know, at some point, do you want to be a full-time content creator? And I always knew the answer was no. I didn't necessarily want to be a full-time content creator, but I did want to pursue travel full-time. So I eventually just kind of made that decision after having to kind of sacrifice and juggle certain responsibilities. I just made the decision earlier this year to just go fully into travel. And now I do content creation, travel writing, um, have written a couple of my own books, and that's kind of what I want to pursue full-time. But I think um, for a while, I kind of felt like I had to sacrifice a lot of things and say no to a lot of opportunities that were being presented to me because of that full-time career that I had. And what were the considerations and, I guess, calculations you had to make in your head yeah, to make this jump? I think it was a risk, for sure. So, I mean, it's not that I didn't enjoy my full-time career. I really enjoyed it. I was working at a company that I liked. You know, um, I was doing well in it. It reached a point where it was no longer my dream. So I think at university... You know, I really wanted to work in fashion, like particularly fashion tech. It was super exciting. And then after I'd been working in it for about seven years and doing travel on the side, I realized actually if I could travel for my job, that would actually be the dream. So my dream kind of evolved. And yeah, I was getting to this point where I had to constantly say no to opportunities to travel and things that I really wanted to say yes to because my full-time career came first. So that was kind of the trigger. And then obviously I had to assess things from a risk point of view and from a financial point of view as well and make sure that if I did take that leap it would make financial sense as well and and luckily I'm in a place where it has now all fallen together. Wow that's amazing so you've lined everything up <laughs> you've planned everything and you've written a book what, what a dream. I think from the outset, it looks like, you know, the dream and everything's fallen into place, but it has actually taken many years of kind of consistency and kind of hard work behind the scenes to make it actually happen. I think maybe for a while I was dreaming about this and I sort of thought, okay, how am I actually going to get to that place where I can actually make this a reality? And there's been multiple steps along the way. Yeah, I think consistency is key here, isn't it? So creation. key. For content creation, like if you want to grow an audience, if you want to be opening yourself up to opportunities to work with brands, et cetera, consistency is the number one thing. I get asked this all the time from people who want to be content creators and they're always like, how do you build your following? How do you get to where you are now? And that, well, there are many different factors that come to play but consistency is probably number one yeah and in practice how did you do that while maintaining a full-time career honestly just like time management and being super organized um so pretty much every single weekend I would go away on these weekends away traveling mainly around the UK because you can't really jet off to Europe for like a short weekend um, and then every single day of my annual leave I would always save to go on you know really exciting holidays and essentially just plan when I was going to be creating content. And luckily, you know, my career is one, my full-time career was one where 
um, it kind of complemented the work that I was doing as a content creator. So that's not to say that I had any kind of time off given by my former employers to go pursue content creation during the full-time week, but at least they actually did complement each other. Mm. So I was working in a kind of partnerships and influencer facing role, which meant that the things I learned as a content creator complemented what I was doing full-time and vice versa. Yeah. So let's talk about your full-time careers. Like, uh, tell me all about it and what you've learned in becoming a full-time content creator and writer. Yeah. So I guess I was working at, I worked at kind of three um, different tech platforms of different sizes, mainly with influencers, um, kind of encouraging them to join the said platforms that I was working at and utilize them to their advantage. Um, and also kind of partnering with different brands across those platforms as well. And I think it's really funny because I think for a long time, I was held back from pursuing content creation full time, even though in my full-time role, I was actually helping people do that. Why is that? Yeah, I don't know. I think maybe maybe a little bit of imposter syndrome or maybe travel is quite different to fashion. And I think as a, if you're a fashion content creator, it's quite, it's very lucrative. And you can, you know, even if you have kind of a small following, relatively small following, you can make a lot of money quite mm. quickly because you're selling product and product sells really easily. As a travel content creator, it's quite different. You're trying to sell experiences, and a lot of the time they have a higher um, cost to them. So people aren't gonna, you know, purchase them on an impulse. You're kind of creating more of a narrative and a story. So I think for a long time I was like, being a content creator full-time is not really a possibility for me. I'll just do this on the side as a hobby. I don't necessarily wanna make this my full-time career, um, but then, yeah, I think earlier this year, I just had this realization where I was like, I actually can make this a reality and it would be my dream to do it. So why not? Yeah. And I feel like there aren't that many travel um, influencers. I mean, not that I know of anyways. <laughs> like. I think I think there are, it's like a different niche in itself. So mm -hmm. it's, it's quite different. It's quite funny because I feel like I have various influencer friends who all fall into different hubs and I've kind of got to know them through different stages of my life. So when I first started content creation, I was taking lots of pictures of London, pretty streets, pretty doors, etc. And there's a big hub of London content creators who post about that. Then similarly, when I was working full-time in fashion tech, the majority of the people I was working with um, were all fashion influencers. And so I know them because of my work, not necessarily because of my own profile. And now the majority of my friends are all other travel writers or content creators. So I do feel like there are all of these different hubs mm. and you can kind of feel like you're in a bubble if you're just hanging out with people yeah. in one of those hubs. But I like to kind of float around. Yeah. And what would you say is your USP as a travel? I think definitely um, the hotels angle. So I mainly share reviews about luxury hotels around the world. And the thing that I've always said to my audience is that I'll always be incredibly honest about where I go, whether it's a good experience or a slightly negative one, I'll always share my honest review. I don't get paid to go to those hotels. So I either will pay to go to them myself or I'll get invited on a kind of press review. And therefore I have no obligation to say anything positive. It's always just my honest opinion. And I think that's how I've built a kind of authentic and engaged audience is by being honest myself and not taking on too many commercial partnerships. Yeah, that's so important, isn't it? 
being authentic. Yeah. I think I never want to be viewed as kind of like a sellout. Like I never want to work with a brand that's off brand for me because I think it's so obvious to the consumer. I'm a consumer myself as well, of course. And when I see, you know, someone working with a brand that isn't really the right fit, you, you kind of question that and then you question the influencer's authenticity as well. Yeah, absolutely. And was there an inflection point when you thought, oh, like this kind of works and this is I, the way I'm going to go? Yeah, I think it was um, in the years, in the kind of years leading up to lockdown, I was starting to really narrow my niche down into kind of UK hotels in particular um, and getting invites to review them, but also reviewing them off my own kind of money as well because that's what I enjoy doing and I was being flooded with all of these questions from people being like you're the UK hotel go-to tell me where I should go on this weekend away and I think that's again why I was driven to distill all that information into the into the first book yeah and how do you manage your community all your followers yeah, I think I try to have a really open relationship with them. So I have my DMs open. People message me all the time and they're more than welcome to. I do regular Q&As. I'm very open to anyone DMing me. I think it's kind of sad sometimes when influencers reach a stage where they kind of don't want to have any interaction with their followers and they maybe shut off their messages. Um, and I get it. Some people have reached a stage where they're so big and they might have trolls and that kind of thing. Luckily, I'm not at that stage. And so i I try to have a great relationship with my followers. If anyone wants to message me for travel recommendations or tips, I always willingly share it, you know, for free. It's on my blog, it's on my Instagram, but I also share it with them willingly because without my audience, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. Earlier, you talked about challenges in being an influencer. Can, can you tell me all the dirt? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's just like some generalizations around influencers and there's also a lack of education. So I think it's funny because I've worked on both sides. So I've worked as an influencer and then I've worked in-house at companies where I've kind of had to give work to influencers. And I think being in that position has given me empathy for both sides. I do think influencers get a bad rep in general. Like people want to label them and, and don't really understand their value sometimes. Um, Maybe they think they're unreliable or they're inauthentic or they're sellouts, et cetera. But I think you just have to find the right ones to work with, whether you're a brand or a company or you're a consumer, you also have to find the right people who you trust. So I think that's a challenge is kind of trying to present myself as someone who can bring value to brands, hotels, people in the industry um, even though my main label is an influencer. As an influencer, I'll get approached by brands, PR mm. agencies, companies who just don't understand how the whole system works. And obviously, I, I understand the industry is relatively new, but it's also not that new. Like, it's been around for 10 years now. You know, when I was at school, I was already following a lot of influencers online. And yet, a, there's a lot of misinformation or lack of education about how to work with influencers. Yeah. Can you give me an example of a brand that uh, I guess <laughs> struggle to understand? I won't do. name any names. Yes, yes, of course. But not. I got a, so for instance, I got an invite to a restaurant the other day um, from this PR and they basically reached out and you could just tell it was not a personalized email at all because it was just a blanket mailer. Mm. And they reached out inviting me for a meal at a restaurant and then 
after the invitation, there were like all of these clauses, like, you know, you're only allowed to order X, Y, Z. You have to then post with X amount, like 20 different hashtags, like a ridiculous number of requirements, which is just completely not in line with industry best practice. And you'd rather not go to that dinner. Exactly. I'd rather not go and I can pay for it myself. I don't need to go have a limitation on what I can order and then post with 20 hashtags. So I kind of politely replied to him was like, this is not for me. I'll politely decline. And also, um, this is kind of not really the usual standard yeah. that is required. But it's coming from, from, from a PR agency. Coming from a PR I'm agency. Surprised. And then her reply was <laughs> even worse. She then said, oh, I've now looked at your profile and I actually really like it. Can can I maybe call you and discuss? I actually really yeah. like it. <laughs> like I actually didn't like it before. Or even worse, I never looked at it before and you were just a blanket email. Yeah. Can I now call Love you that. and ask you um, for your advice on how I should approach influencers? And I thought, okay, so you never even looked at my profile in the first place. And also now you're asking me for advice and you're asking for access to just call me whenever you want. Like definitely not. If you want, you can ask me for a consultation on how to work with influencers, but I shouldn't be telling you how to do your job yeah. if you're the one reaching out to work with me in the and first place. And also common sense in relationship building, whether you're an influencer or not, you don't just like send a blanket email. Yeah. You like and personalize then it afterwards, and ask for a favor, exactly. but like demand it. And then afterwards say, oh, I've actually looked at your profile and I really like it. I think when brands work, brands, hotels, PRs, whatever. I think when they work with influencers, they they can't just pluck random people from Instagram whose profile they've literally just no. seen. You need to kind of be um, monitoring someone's profile for quite a long time. Yeah, it and needs to be on brand. Exactly. You need to have a relationship. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> that person needs a lot of learning. Yeah. Wow. But you'd be you'd be surprised. That's not like an isolated case. Yeah. I mean, I think that was one extreme. But there are many other things in between that I've experienced where people just don't know what best practices are. Yeah, I I think um, people just don't understand that influencers are human at the end of the day. Mm. And you just need to approach it like a real person. Yeah. Not like an entity or like a magazine. Exactly. So what's it like from the other side? So I'd say if you're a brand and you're looking to work with content creators or influencers, um, choosing the right ones is basically the biggest challenge that you have and I think you need to be monitoring an influencer's profile for a really long time to make sure that they align with your brand you need to do your due diligence what other kind of brands do they work with have they ever said anything in the past that kind of contradicts your brand's values um is their content is their quality of content aligned with yours it's actually you know quite a big task that you have to do there's yeah. quite a lot of background research and those are the relationships that I think those are when you choose the right people it's very obvious that if they have great brand alignment like ultimately you want to choose people influencers to represent your brand who are ready consumers of your brand yeah like absolutely. I'm sure for Astrid and Miu, you work with influencers who were wearing or purchasing yeah. jewelry and from there it's a really natural relationship I think the worst thing that a brand could do is just pluck someone out of thin air who maybe they like the look of, but has no affinity with the brand. 
And then you see that person talking about them and it just seems so unnatural. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it sounds so simple. And we spend so much time building relationships and cultivating our influencer relations. And sometimes like we're tempted to go with an influencer with a huge following just because they look good, but it like never works whenever we test that. Exactly. And it needs to be built over time. So if you don't have a relationship with someone existing, like if they're not an existing customer, you have to, you know, probably meet them in person, build that relationship, get them to come to some of your events, get them to understand and try your product before you start working with them on a commercial basis. Because yeah. Their audience will see right through it. And so yeah. Yours. As a consumer, I yeah. can see right through when it's an ad yeah. versus when it's organic. Yeah. yeah even sure. if it's not tagged. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the most common mistake influencers make? It's on the flip side. Influencers, the big biggest decision that they can make is, you know, to put it harshly is to be a sellout. And to work with brands that just don't align with their profile. I see it happen all the time. Like, I guess for an influencer, it's easy cash. Mm. Like, you're getting paid probably this big lump sum by a brand to just promote their product. And it will probably take very little work on your side to create the content. But you lose authenticity. You lose that relationship and trust with your audience. And you'll probably put off other brands from wanting to work with you in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Shall we talk about your book? Sure. Yeah, tell me all about it. So, all about them. Yes, all about them. So the first book, British Boutique Hotels, was published in 2021. Um, I came up with the idea during lockdown. So I actually always wanted to write a book. When I was like five years old, I loved writing. I actually wanted to be an author. And then further down the line, it just didn't really seem like a viable career path. So I've always enjoyed writing. And in the years leading up to lockdown, I had built up this very niche expertise about UK hotels. And that was because, you know, like I said, every other weekend I was traveling around the UK, visiting hotels off the back of my own pocket, just because that's what I love doing. And so in lockdown, when I was twiddling my thumbs, I just thought, hey, why don't I write a book about UK hotels? I get DMs from people all the time asking me for recommendations. How about I distill all of that knowledge into, you know, a hard thing that people can actually publish? I also do want to have a product that is physical, that is separate from my digital profile, which can kind of exist without my personal brand or my face behind it. I want the book to be able to stand on its own. So I reached out to Hoxton Mini Press, my publisher. They were the only publisher, the first and only publisher that I reached out to. I already owned some of their books and I knew that I loved them and I wanted to work with them. And I was like, I sent them this pitch and I was like, you guys are the only people that I want to work with. It's either you or no one else. Um, They're basically an East London husband and wife duo. And they do these beautiful photo book-led guides around London, around the UK. And they actually have a section on their website that says, pitch to us. Mm. And it says, pitch us your book idea in 30 words. If you can't do it in 30 words, we probably can't sell your book. So I pitched the idea to them. And then about a week or so later, um, Martin, who's the co-founder, rang me and said, yeah, we actually really like this idea why don't we do it? And for them, they kind of were taking a punt on me because at the time I wasn't writing for any publications. I was only writing for myself. So I only really had my blog and my Instagram as a portfolio of my work. But they could see what you're about through your content. I think they could see that, you know, I had a clear vision. I had this vision. I had this niche knowledge. Um, And so, yeah, we did it. And it was out a year later. And then earlier this year, they came back to me and they said, we'd like to write a second book with you specifically about London hotels to fit within our London series, which is their best-selling series. 
And I was like, yeah, I'd love to do it. So that's amazing. Second book came out in August. Yeah. And you're working on your third book? Fingers crossed. I won't speak too much about it because um, I don't want to speak about it before it comes into fruition. But I do have an idea that I'm hoping to explore and maybe I can start writing it very soon. Yeah. Amazing. I'm going to ask you for some advice. Quick fire. Sure. Best London hotel? Oh, such a different question. I I feel like with these questions, I always have three. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) three, three three. best. Okay, so Beaverbrook Townhouse in Chelsea. I love that place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not in the hotel room, but uh, the premise. So kind of unique. I love Nicola Harding as the interior designer. I love her interiors. They're always so colorful and quirky and unique. You know, the wallpapers. Like, it's not the interiors that I would have in my home. And I think that's why I enjoy staying there as a hotel because you're getting something different. Exactly. So there's that novelty. And I think it's also a little bit of a hidden gem. I feel like not that many people know about it. Um, second one would be the 22 it's in Mayfair it's a hotel and a members club and again the interiors are beautifully done it's kind of like Parisian romantic lots of velvet lots of red roses but done in a really classy way and they do the best Sunday roast in London Ooh, definitely recommend the Sunday roast and you have to be a member to go you don't have to be a member to go so you don't have to be a member to go to either the restaurant or stay in the hotel they just have a separate member section Um, but you can still enjoy it. And last one, very, very kind of bougie, but the Barclay, it's just... Yeah, it's really nice. Amazing. And you don't have to stay over to experience it. Again, they have like so many different restaurants. I love the Cedric Grolet patisserie that they have there, the best croissants in London, Mm. but also the Barclay Bar. It's this little hidden bar that's kind of tucked away down a corridor and they have the most beautiful interiors in there done by Brian O'Sullivan and a little pink snug, which is really nice for date night. Oh, nice. Um, so even if you can't stay over, you can still go experience a little bit of the yeah, bar. I'll try a date night. We've got yeah. every Tuesdays and Thursday date nights. Oh, cute. In. It's yeah. a very romantic bar. Have so. you been to the peninsula? The new one? Yeah. I haven't yet been. I need to go in and pop in. Yeah, I haven't been either. Let me know how it is. I will. Yeah. <laughs> and best UK hotels? So my number one is the Newt in Somerset. And it's my undisputed number one. I mean, I feel like I've stayed in, I've been lucky enough to stay in, I would say, most UK hotels and just none of them ever matches What's the so good about the it? Newt, the guest experience. Their team there are so lovely. Um, I've been, you know, over the course of many years, I've been several times and each time I go back, the same team members are there, which I think is a really telling sign. It means that they treat their staff well and that shows through and comes through to the guest experience. They're happy to be there. They really want to welcome you and anyone is welcome. And what I also love about them is that they they are recognized as kind of one of the best hotels in the UK, but they don't rest on their laurels. So every single time I go, there's something new. They're always creating some, some kind of new experience on site on their hotel grounds. So they're not just a hotel. They have this huge estate where they have gardens, like a restored Roman villa that you can go visit, Mm. several museums, several different restaurants. It's like a whole experience. I really need to go now. They've been on my list for ages. I haven't been yet. And it's worth it. This is the thing. I think I get a lot of people asking me, oh, you know, it's quite expensive to go stay there. And I, I say, well, I'd much rather forego staying at like three other different hotels that are more affordable. And I'd, I'd rather save personally, save my pennies to splash out on one really memorable stay there. It's just one then. 
one UK hotel. Well, okay, I can I can tell you more. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you had three for every list. <laughs> okay, so other favorites. I really love Time. It's in the Cotswolds and it's a family-run hotel. Um, the nicest family ever who run it. So Millie, their general manager, is the owner's daughter. And Charlie, who heads up the um, restaurant, is the owner's son. And they've created this really amazing, um, it's kind of like a village within a village is how they describe themselves. It's really peaceful, really relaxed, most beautiful design bedrooms. Um, They create all of their kind of body washes and soaps on site. They hand paint all of their linens and wallpapers. Like they have their own brand. Um, that their owner, Corinne, actually hand paints herself. And oh, that sounds so dreamy. Yeah, so dreamy. They have a very sustainable ethos as well. So everything that you eat in the kitchen is also kind of grown in their kitchen gardens, locally sourced. It's the kind of place where you truly unwind. So you could go there for a couple of days and not leave the premises and just relax in the spa, eat great food, kick back in your bedroom. Um, I love it there. And also the Cotswolds is one of my favorite parts of the UK as well. It's such a pretty part. And if I had to choose one more, probably on the completely opposite end of the scale in terms of aesthetics, the Fife Arms in Scotland is a super cool hotel. So it's owned by the same owners as Hauser and Worth, the art gallery. They're so cool. Yeah. And they like, it is a real experience to stay there because it is unlike any other hotel that I've been to in terms of interiors. It's like literal walls of taxidermy, tartan, hand-painted ceilings, like casual Picasso paintings just propped up in the living room. Oh, I love that. In one of their restaurants, they literally have a flying like stuffed deer suspended across the bar. Oh, and the, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, was a bit, <laughs> I was a bit hesitant as well because taxidermy, like I'm not really a taxidermy fan, but it works. And I think it also works because it's in the Scottish Highlands. So it feels really cozy. There's lots of tartan everywhere. And it's a great place to go hiking if you like hiking. Mm. So those are probably my three, but it's really hard to choose. Yeah, I'm um, sure. And my absolute number one is the Newt. The Newt. <laughs> You're so good at selling all these hotels. <laughs> Best European hotel. Ooh. So I actually just got back from Lake Como and I stayed at Pasalacqua, which is this, well, I say it's brand new, but it opened last year. And it was actually just named the number one hotel in the world by the world's 50 best hotels. And it was incredible. It was an incredible experience. It's basically like a private house hotel. So you can't go in unless you're staying over. You can't go in to just have a look around or eat in the restaurant. And it's this beautiful villa that's set on the banks of Lake Como. So you have the village behind you and then these tiers of garden leading down to the lake. And every single garden has something special about it. So they have the rose gardens, the um, kitchen gardens, the gardens where you have chickens roaming around, all sorts of different things. And they just like heaven. Yeah. And it's just like this peaceful, bucolic getaway that's shut off from the rest of the world. Um, They have one restaurant, one bar. It's just a super relaxing kind of place. Yeah. And Lake Como in general, that area is just beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Just stunning. So I feel like in terms of location, it's it's pretty unbeatable. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Gina. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining You're me. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow the podcast wherever you're listening or watching. You can follow me at Connie Nam 
Astrid and Mew at Astrid and Mew and Unboxed Instagram page at Unboxed underscore Founder Confidential. See you next week.